Have you ever considered how the rest of the world sees our culture? Like, if you travel abroad, you see like, okay, we're Americans, and so we're going to be like loud on the subway and whatever. Like, there's certain things that you just show up as Americans wherever you are, even when you're not trying to. But then there are those, those things about like, where people come to our country and then they go, well, this is weird, this is weird, this is weird, why do you do this? And so I got sucked into one of those articles, it was like 50 things about America that foreigners think are really, is really strange. And... Um, I've seen those kind of things before, not because I just want to hate on our country or anything like that. I just I'm like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, it, sometimes it's interesting to see how other people see you, like through their eyes or whatever. And one that always comes up on that is that uh, most people, when they come to this country, they think we're really weird about tipping. Like, we tip a lot, and, and, and everyone, and it's, and it's a weird thing. Um, because for a lot of people, when you get a bill at a restaurant, that should be it. Like, this is how much it costs. Okay, I pay that. And then in America, it's like, no, 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 there's more on top of the bill. Whatever the number is, you got to go, you got to do math. You have to do math and it's going to be some percentage above the bill. You need to also tip the person. And that's just really weird. We were actually in the, the Netherlands a couple months ago and tipping's not really a thing there. So uh, what, that, what that means is when you eat at a restaurant, like after they serve you your food, like you're not going to see that server again. There's, they're not going to like run by and like drop your bill off and be like, no rush, I'm just going to leave this here, which I've served way to tables before. That means totally a rush, get out of here. I need to flip your table and let someone else have it. But in the Netherlands, man, you get a table, it is yours for the night. You're going you're gonna to close it down on that table if you want because they're not trying to flip the tables because they're paid a certain wage and you're not tr- they're not working for tips and all that. So it's, it's a different it's a really different thing, um, and it's weird in this culture how much we, how often we tip. Like everybody, I, I guess I kind of get it with a barista who's like, you know, poured their poured a little heart into your latte, and you're like, oh, that's clever. I'll give you an extra dollar, or whatever it is, you know, for thank you for doing that. But man, like it, it shows up all over the place now. You can't even like go buy a donut. Like you go get a donut, and they're like, they give you the screen to like tip them. I'm like. You, you just, what did you do? You moved the donut from that case into this box. Like, do I, is that above and beyond? Do I need to pay you 18% for that? I don't understand. You know, my apologies if you were in the donut service industry and this is how you make your pay in rent this month. I just don't understand. I'm like, man, this, that's just changed in my lifetime. Like, we're tipping everything. The other thing that's weird about our culture, and these are things we don't really notice because we're living in it, right? But another thing that's weird is that the sticker price is not the price. Like, you go buy the thing and then there's tax thrown on top. And, and to, to someone from another culture where the price is the price, they think we're just a bunch of liars. They're like, why can't you just tell me what it costs? Why do you have to throw money on top of the money? It's like, it's really confusing, right? And I, and I bring all this up to say, there are things in our culture that we just do and that we live in, and it's just the water we're swimming in, and we don't even notice it. That just unquestioned beliefs and assumptions about how life is supposed to be lived and what are you supposed to do in certain situations. Every culture throughout history has those things. American culture is pretty strong with its beliefs and values, and with those things come some spoken and unspoken uh, assumptions, and there's some pressure that goes along with it. So if you believe the things that the average American believes and you kind of swim in that stream of you know, general, generic sort of American, and you believe certain things, then you will be applauded. Oh, good, you believe these things like we believe. And if you don't believe, you believe something different, you're going to be, oh, you're, you're a bigot, you're hateful, you're whatever. Like, the, we have ways in our culture of shaming people who have different beliefs. Even in a free and open and tolerant society, we have ways of shaming people who don't fit in, just like every culture has its ways throughout history of, of shaming you. 
And I, and I wanted to bring that up because I wanted to do this series for, for three weeks. And I want to talk about um, how the people of God can live differently amongst the culture that they're in. How they can um, kind of march to the beat of a, of a different drummer. And how we should live in the midst of what is, in America, what is a very strong dominant culture. As a follower of Jesus, if you say, all right, I'm following him and I'm in on the God thing, some of what you believe as a follower of Jesus is in line with American culture. It, it's fine. You know, generally we should love people and turn the other cheek and those sorts of things. And then some of what you believe as a follower of Jesus is going to be out of step with mainstream American culture. And what do you do with that? How do you navigate that? Um, I, I know for me, it feels like tension. It feels like, well, should I do this and, or not do this? What, what would be a good thing to do? What's, what's not good? Um, and like sometimes people will say to me like, Chris, oh, you got to watch this show. It's on Netflix. It's so great. You got to watch it. And sometimes I'll, I'll start watching it. And at some point I'll turn it off and I'll be like, nah, I, just, I can't. Like, it's just not good for me. Whether it's um, violence or some just a very dark thing or just sexual things or whatever, I'm just like, mm. I know I'm a free adult, I know I'm a grown man and I can do what I want, but it doesn't mean I should do everything that I want. And some things are like, yeah, that's just, I can't, I can't get into that. I don't care how well written it is and how good the acting is or whatever, like I can't get into it. There's some of those lines I have to draw. It's the same thing with like food, you know, like I could eat all the dessert. I could, but should I? Is that a good thing? I mean, I want to. I want to eat dessert first. Sometimes I want to eat dessert instead of the main meal. Sometimes I want to eat that and call my mom and tell her that I'm ruining my dinner right now because I'm eating all the dessert. Like, I want to do that, and I'm in a free society. I can do that. But should I? Is that good for me? I don't, I don't think so. So I have this tension. As a follower of Jesus, I have a tension of I can do this, but should I do it? It's legal. Does that make it right? Does that mean it's something I should participate in? It's fun. But is it actually good or good for me? Now, people have always felt that tension. I want to tell you about a group of people that, that, that lived thousands of years ago in, in the scripture. The ancient Israelites felt this tension, and God set down some rules for them. If you think about the Israelites as, a, as a, an ethnic group, as a group of people, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So Exodus chapter 1 tells us that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So they were, this was race-based slavery where one group of people is owning another group of people. Not just them, but their children and their children's children. This goes on for 400 years. That means if you're a slave, an Israelite slave in Egypt, you don't remember a time when your people weren't slaves. Like this goes on for generation after generation after generation. We are enslaved by this other group of people. And if there's any positive to that, you don't have any angst about what you should be doing every day because it is all decided for you. This is what you do. You get up and you make bricks and you build pyramids. You're going to do that all day, every day. That is your lot in life and we will feed you. And you know the deal. Make the bricks, you will live. Stop making bricks, we will kill you. It's pretty simple. And in that kind of situation, you don't have to worry about freedom of choice. You don't have to worry about if you're making the wrong choices or whatever. You just do the thing over and over and over. Well, God eventually delivers the Israelites from that situation. 
And they uh, are put, they go out into the desert where they wander for 40 years, which sounds like a really long time. But during that time in the desert, God gives the Israelites some laws, some rules, some commandments. This is where you've heard of like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, that kind of thing, honor your father and your mother. All of these things are in the Ten Commandments. They come out of this period where the Israelites are no longer living as slaves in Egypt, but they are not yet in the promised land which is ruled by, and, and, and that land is ruled by the, the Canaanites. They're in this in-between space. And during that time, God gets very concrete with them um, and, and gives laws. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. This stuff sounds very obvious and common sense to us, but it wasn't common sense. And I would argue it's still not common sense because we're still killing each other. So it's not all that common that everybody thinks, hey, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. Now, when God roots his laws for his people... He, he explains them in terms of this, this term, this word. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word for holy. He says you need to be holy, and it's the Hebrew word is kadosh. And this word means be apart, be separate. And so when God looks at his people, he says, here, you, my people, I need you to be separate than the rest of the world. And you see this all across the board for the ancient Israelites. You're going to be separate in the way, you're going to be holy in the way you consume food. There's stuff you're going to eat, there's stuff you're not going to eat that is not going to be good for you. Um, you're going to handle relationships differently because I'm your God and you're my people and, and because you're going to be holy, you're going to do relationships differently. You're going to do sexuality differently. You're going to do um, ha- how you handle work and, and rest. You're going to handle that stuff differently than the culture around us. And we'll look at some of those things in this series uh, of what holiness looks like, not just for them, but, but for us over the next couple weeks. Um, but I think when we start talking about holiness, it kind of kicks up some tension in us. Because if I said to you, um, we should be holy, and, and you think about the ancient Israelites, you're like, that's all well and good for them. Those were nomadic, tribal sort of people. They needed some rules. They needed some boundaries. I am an enlightened 21st century free American. I do not need those kind of rules around me. And so the idea of being holy now kicks up tension in us because let's be honest, the word doesn't even sound good to us. If I said to you, hey, I want you to meet this this lady that I know, she's a friend of mine, you need to meet her, she's really holy, you would be like, I'm good, I don't need to meet her, (laughs) like, right? Because that makes you nervous. Oh, she's holy, oh crap, because what you're thinking is, and I am not, (laughs) Your holy friend is going to think I'm very unholy. Oh, can I not cuss around you? Can I not? All these things that go into your head, right? We're we're uncomfortable with holy. And then you add in holy father, holy sacrament, holy water, holy cathedral, holy land. Like that stuff feels distant and weird to us and stuffy and uncomfortable. If you grew up Catholic, you have extra baggage around holy, right, That, that other groups may not have. You know, you go like, man, this is a lot. And I get why we're uncomfortable with it. So let me try to reframe it for you. When I say the word holy, let's think of it maybe in a different way. And to do this, I want to use an analogy from football. And I know not everybody in here loves football, but yesterday was the last Saturday. There is no more college football for the rest of the year. And I think this is a good thing. And I think this is a sign of growth and, and, a, and a good thing. And, and then and pro football starts up soon. I like football. I'm not a meathead, I promise. But I want to give you this analogy because I, when I saw this, I thought that's a good way of thinking about holiness. 
This is what preachers do. We look at other things and, and find ways that that connects. Uh, and, and to do that, I want to show you this up on the screen. Um, Okay, let's, let's get real football here for a second, all right? We're getting, we're getting X's and O's, folks. Those are not hugs and kisses, by the way. This is, so two teams, you got the O's versus the X's. They always play each other. I don't know why, but anyway. Um, holiness, then, looks like this. Notice out here on the right side, um, you've got this guy down here in the bottom, represented by this circle here, and he's going to go that way. The arrow tells you this is where he's going. So let's say we hand him the ball, and he's going to run that way, and he's going to tr go try to score a touchdown, which is way up there, top of the screen. He's going to go that way. This other guy in the far right, he's out there at the edge. He's running a, a, a passing route to run out there. But notice the guy in between them, this guy up here at the end of the line, this, this circle here in the middle. He's going up, and then it has a little flat line, and then there's an X, right? You see that? That is saying that his job, that guy right there, his job is to go out there and block that guy. So he's going to go out there and grab that guy and try to hold, push him around and stop him. In football terms, what they would refer to that as is setting the edge. They would say, you need to set the edge out here so that if you're on offense, you set the edge with the defender. You decide where the defender is going to go so that the running back can come behind you and go out there and score a touchdown. You decide what the boundaries are. A lot of the action football is happening in the middle, but there are edges to it. And on offense, you want to set that and, and be strong. You go out there and really knock that guy down, and then the people can run past him. Or if you're on defense, you're that X out there on the end, they'll tell you, you need to set the edge. You decide where it is, because if not, they're going to run right over you. So you have to come out there strong, knock, knock the offensive guy down so that you can go make the tackle. So setting the edge is sort of an offensive and defensive thing. And the idea is you either set it or it will be set for you. You either are strong in that space on that boundary or you are going to get run over. And I love that. That's an interesting idea around holiness. There are boundaries, there are edges, and you either set them or they will be set for you by something or someone else. And so holiness looks like setting that edge and saying this is where this is going to be. And for Christians, holiness looks like where does God draw those boundaries, where does he set those edges, and how do I stay strong in those spaces and, and, and stay there? If... if football doesn't work for you, think of it also like this. Think of it like a guardrail. When you're on a highway and you're going over a bridge, there's these metal rails that they put up along the side because the government has decided that it would be better for your car to hit, to, to hit a metal rail, which will jack up your car and be expensive. It is better that you do that than there's no rail there and you go careening over the edge and fall to your death. And so the government has decided we're cool with you getting your car jacked up as long as you don't go over the edge, right? We're going to put those guardrails in place. We're going to set an edge there for you so that you can stay within, within the lines. Um, so I want, you to, I, want, I want us to look at how God sets the edge for people in Scripture, and then we'll talk about it in our modern day. Here's how God sets the edge for the Israelites. He gives them laws while they wander in the desert. If you read through the Bible, you read Genesis, and there's some good stories in there. You get into Exodus, and there's Moses, and let my people go, and all that. It's good. And then you get into Leviticus, and if you're trying to read the Bible straight through from cover to cover, right around Leviticus, you're like, oh, this is dry. This is getting rough in here. It's just law after law. Do this. Don't do this. Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat. Don't wear fabric with two, clothes with two kinds of fabric. Like It's just stuff. You're like, what is going on in here? Well, in, in Leviticus 18, there's a bunch of sexual laws. So God says, it's a lot about nakedness. You can go back and read it. It's fun read. Read it aloud to your family tonight. It's, it's, it's stuff like don't sleep with your mother-in-law and don't have sex with your daughter-in-law and stuff like that, that 
we would go like, yeah, that should be common sense, right? But it isn't, and it wasn't in, in the ancient world. And it, I'm not even sure how much common sense it is today. I was, I was at the gym, and they had uh, on the TV, you know, they had one of those shows, like a, I don't know, it's like a Maury Povich kind of show. And you know how, like, um, they have the subtitle on the screen about what that episode's about? You all watched, Maury. Like, you're, okay. I'm not the only one, no. So the subtitle on that episode said, uh, I slept with my sister's husband, and I will do it again. And I was like, yo, that's a, that's a real bad idea. You're going to do it again. Like you, that's not, that's, so it's not a mistake if you're doing it twice. Now you're just really into it. Like, that's a bad idea, you know? And so you would think all these, like, sexual laws, do this, don't, don't sleep with this, like, you think that's common sense, but it isn't, right? It isn't always, in, in, even in, in our culture. And so God drew some boundaries for them. But listen to how he talks about it. Leviticus, before he gets into all those laws, he says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they, did in, as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God sets all of these rules in the context of relationship. I'm your God. You are my people. And so if this is going to work, if you're going to flourish, if you're going to grow, you're going to have, we're going to do it like this. We're going to be in a relationship. And, and if you follow what I'm telling you, because I created you, I know how you're made, and if you will stick within the boundaries that I've drawn, if you go stay inside those edges, it's going to be okay. You're not supposed to, God says, don't live like the Egyptians did. I know you've been there for 400 years and you think that's how people live. Don't do what they did. And you're going to go to the Canaanites and they've got a culture and they're going to do things as well. Don't do what they do. Inside a larger culture, you're going to have to have some different edges and some different lines, um, and you're going to have to be a different people. And then look at Leviticus 19, how he says it in the next chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be kadosh, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's not just saying, like, you be weird because I'm God and I'm weird and we're going to be weird together. That's saying, hey, I am separate. I am separate than the way culture is living now. And I want you to be separate as well. I'm your creator. I created you. I know how you function. I know what's best for you. And I'm telling you, you're going to have to live differently than the culture around you. That was true for the Israelites in Egypt and in Canaan. That was true for Christians in Rome. That is true for people in England in the 1600s. And that is true for Americans in the 21st century. If we are going to follow God and follow him well, we are going to have to be holy. We're going to have to be kadosh. We're going to have to be separate and different than the world around us. We can't let the world squeeze us into its mold. We need to be set apart, and because when we do that, we are then living the way God designed us to live. Now, let's talk about it where it shows up in the New Testament, because that's the Old Testament, and that feels very distant from us. But in the New Testament, you start getting around the first century A.D., um, you see a guy named Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest followers. And Peter, as he becomes an old man, he ends up dying in Rome, And in around the year 60 AD, Peter writes some letters to Christians. And these Christians are are Jews who are trying to follow Jesus. And they're doing it set against the backdrop of the larger 
Roman Empire. Um, and so listen to what he tells them about how to live in their culture. First Peter chapter 1, this is kind of the theme of this entire series. It says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children. Now that's a hard one for us to swallow, right? Because we think obedient is for kids and dogs. That's, what, that's, that's who obeys. And Peter, as an adult, is talking to other adults and saying, no, no, you're obedient children too. Not of me, Peter, but of God. We're following him. And that's hard for us to swallow because as Americans, we are the don't tread on me people. We are the, I'm not following the king. But as followers of Jesus, you do have a king and we live in a kingdom, a different kingdom than this world, right? And so our call is to go like, no, I should obey the king. Like, I know obedience is wildly unpopular in our culture, but there's something there. We're called to follow uh, Jesus as the king, and when God lays down the edges and the boundaries for us, he's doing that for our own good. Continuing on to verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says, it is written. Guess where he got that from? Leviticus 19, we just read it. Peter knows the scripture. He's looking back and going, no, this is what has always been written about God. You shall be kadosh. You should be separate, set apart, because God is separate and set apart, we are, and we are his people. And he's telling these Christians that even in the Roman culture, they need to be different. Now, what do you know about ancient Rome? Probably things you've seen on whatever show, right? We've seen like, well, ancient Rome has a lot of marble, and um, people eat grapes, and they're fans, and they wear togas, like it's a frat party or something, you know, and it's kind of, and so that's ancient Rome, and it's decadent, and there's like gladiator games, and, and like that's the kind of stuff we know. Well, the, to the people who are living in it, to these followers of Jesus, there's a lot about the Roman culture that is extremely powerful and strong, and, and, and there was some really weird stuff there. And so for the Christians to be holy didn't mean don't eat shellfish like the Jews in the ancient world. It, they had to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and live holy within this larger culture now? How do we, how do we live out holiness where we're at? And, and they did live different than their neighbors in a couple different ways. Number one, sexually. So for a man in ancient Rome, you had a wife to bear children. You had a, a mistress for pleasure. You had um, oftentimes sexual relationships with like a teenage boy. You would have that. You would have temple prostitutes that you would go visit. That, that's what everyone is doing. That is the dominant culture in the Roman Empire. And Christians come along and go, yeah, we're not going to do all that. We're just going to have a man and a woman, a marriage, and we're just going to keep all sexual activity is right there in that space. We're not going to do all that other stuff. We're not going to swap wives like they would do in the Roman Empire. We're not doing that stuff. And guess what? That relationship where, you're, where sexually it, it's just kept between a man and a woman in marriage, that's better for women and men. Like there's more flourishing there. That's the way God designed us to be. There's more health and safety in that scenario. And so women, particularly women in the ancient world, started flourishing under Christianity in a way they weren't in the larger culture. And it was a, a powerful thing. And that's where the Christians drew, set the edge and drew a boundary where, where the culture wasn't. They handled money differently. You know, Rome, you want to get that house upon the hill. You want servants. You want all that kind of stuff. You want to have a lot of money. 
And the early Christians, going all the way back to the New Testament, you see that they were selling property, they were selling their land, they were pooling their resources together, and they were sharing it with anyone who needed it. So they were handling money very differently. It wasn't all about me and mine and can I get enough. They were distributing money around and saying, hey, I want to help whoever is around me and, and, and help people that are in need. Even though that means I won't get rich personally, it's okay, we're going to care for people. They handled food differently. You know, food is, in a lot of parts of the world, and certainly in the ancient world, would be a sign of wealth. If you, if you gain weight, it's because you're so wealthy and you can afford a lot of food. And so people would want to eat a lot and have some of the best stuff, you know. And the early Christians handled that differently as well. In fact, they would skip meals. They would fast so that they could take that food or the money that went with that food and give it to uh, people who were in need all around them. So they would actually skip meals themselves and then give that food away to people that were in need so that thousands of Christians in Rome would feed millions of people a year through fasting. So they handled food differently. They set edges where the culture did not set an edge. So that's holiness in the scripture. How can we be holy now? What are some ways that that works out for us real practically? Well, really, that is what I want to talk about over the next two weeks and to get into holiness at home and then holiness at work. We'll talk about those two contexts over the next, the next two weeks. What, is it, what does it look like? But before we get into you know, sort of the devil's in the details, kind of like how, how, do we, how does this play out? Before we get into that, I, w- I want to get into sort of the first principle that is behind it. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I've taught about that scripture before here, and mostly I focused on the second part. Be prepared to make a defense for the reason that you have and said, look, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, be ready to speak up when the time comes and speak up about your faith with gentleness and respect. But I've often blown right past the beginning of that, which says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see, when we talk about holiness, we think it's about our action. I got to do this thing. Do this, don't do this. Hang out with these people, don't hang out with these people. Eat this food, don't eat this food. Like, that's the way we draw lines around holiness. It's all about behavior. And yet Peter says, no, no, it starts in your heart. In your heart, you honor Christ as, as holy. Holiness is about the heart first, not about behavior. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Pharisees. And if you had met one or if you were one or whatever, this is like the most religious people of the day. They're good. They follow the rules. They... Um, they give money away, they pray, they do Bible studies all the time. Like, if you had met them, you'd be like, these, are the good, these people are good at the God thing. Like, they're very religious and, and whatever. Um, and yet, Jesus is so critical of these people uh, because they are honoring God with their lips, but in their hearts they are far from him, is what the Old Testament prophets would say. Their hearts are not near God. They're outwardly looking like they're holy so that, in a lot of cases, so that people will think they're holy. But inwardly, they're not holy at all. They're not interested in actually following God in their heart. And here's the deal. Jesus is always after your heart. He's not after external obedience. He's not after just do the right things and check all the boxes. He's interested in how are you actually in your your heart. Um. It's a powerful thing. So how, how, do we, how do we access our own hearts? Well, I think to access your heart, you have to ask yourself some questions and really answer them. 
I heard someone explain it this way, and I think this is an interesting way of thinking about it. Imagine inside your head there's like a little person at a, at a desk who like helps you think, right? And so if I ask you a question, what's your favorite color? The little person at your head goes, oh, easy, red. Red, and you spit it out. Red, easy, cool. If, uh, if I ask the little you, and what did you have for breakfast this morning? The little person in your head goes, oh, what do we have? Eggs, bacon, easy, right? That's, that's not hard. But if I, if I ask you a question, and, and I'll tell you, Jesus is a master at asking these kind of questions. But if, if I ask you a question like, hey, what do you want? What do you, what do you really want? Now, the little person in your head cannot just grab that file quickly. That's like, oh, what do we want? Oh, hold on. Let me think. Um, heart. Hey, heart. This is a heart question. What do you want? What do, what? And, and so you have, to, you have to go inward to this space of like, I got to access the heart here. I got to figure out what is really going on inside here. But man, that's the good stuff. Because you can obey Jesus externally. I can, oh, quit. yeah, I know I'm supposed to do that. Yeah, I'm supposed to give. Yeah, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to show up at church. I'm supposed to pray. I know they want me to serve in that thing. I guess I'll do that, whatever. You could do all that. But you got to get at the heart stuff. And, and, and a way you access the heart is to ask different questions of yourself or have them asked of you. For example, here's a couple of them. I think these are heart questions. Number one, what do you want really? If I ask you what do you want, you'd be like, I want a, a new car. I want to finish grad school. I want, like, but what do you want really? That's a heart question. You got to go inward. Another question, what are you scared of? Scared, afraid, fear, that, that, that is some heart stuff. That's core stuff. What are you scared of? Let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. What would you do if you weren't afraid? That's a heart question. Like what risks are you willing to take? Because that kicks all that stuff inside you, all the emotional stuff that kicks that up. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Or where are you trying to go with your life? I know you're on this treadmill and you're doing the next thing and you're getting the job and you're looking for a, a spouse and a house and, a, and, and all of the things that society says we're supposed to do, but what, to what end? What is the end game here? Where are you trying to go? These are heart questions, not just behavior questions. And over all of those, I would say, where is Jesus in all of that? When you look inward, what do you want really? How does Jesus factor into the answer to that question? What would you do if you weren't afraid? How does your relationship with God factor into thoughts about fear? Where do we, where, where, where do we go? My contention is if you can get the heart right and you can really access your heart and, and know what you want, you'll get behavior right on top of that. It's kind of like saying like if, if you have a strong enough why, you will figure out the how. If you have this burning, I'm following Jesus and I, and I love him and I want to follow him, if you can figure that out, You'll figure out the details about how I'm going to do it here, here, and here. Um, this is why Proverbs chapter 4 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. The, the, how you behave, that flows out of the heart. And so we have to go there first. If you get the heart right, it'll be much easier to set the edges and, and the boundaries. So let me give you one more thing here and then we're done. Some of you may be like, this is cool for religious people, but I'm not very religious. I'm not a Christian at all. And so this is interesting, I guess, but I don't know that I'm all that interested in being holy. Like that's, 
That's weird. I mean, for Christians, we should go like, oh yeah, holiness, like I, this is something I need to think about and dial into in the way I live my life. But why, if, if you're not into that, why should you care at all? And here's why. Because life deals out some pretty rough stuff. And some of it will be your fault, and some of it won't. And no one ever plans to have those things happen. No one wants to get a divorce. Nobody wants to get downsized in their company and laid off. Nobody wants to develop a porn addiction. Nobody wants to get into a bunch of terrible relationships and have a string of bad ones. No one sets out to do these things, but they happen. And a lot of times they happen because we didn't set an edge. We allowed whatever to set it for us. We allowed culture to dictate that I'm okay, you're okay, this will be fine. And we didn't set that edge. And, and some of you have that story. You know what that's like. You're like, ugh, I thought it was okay. Everybody was doing it. I got into the car that night. I did that thing. I followed that person. I took that job. And these are things I just should not have done. But you didn't set an edge. It was, you allowed someone to set it for you and it ended badly. And so I think the idea of holiness and being separate and thinking about where those edges are, I think that applies to all of us. We need to think about where we are going to draw those lines um, so that we don't go off the rails. Because not everything that we can do is something that we should do. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for um, how you love us and, and how you even love us in a, and you express that through setting edges, through boundaries, through holiness, through rules, through things that might make us nervous on the surface but are actually for our greatest good and for our flourishing. God, I pray as we look into this series and we get a little more concrete with some stuff next week, we keep it all in the context of relationship that, that we, we love you, we want to serve you, that flows out of relationship, that we want to be holy out of relationship, not just to prove something or to, to, to not, not just to earn your love or anything like that, but we, we accept your grace that we are loved as we are and um, we commit to being holy people set apart because this is um, for our greatest benefit and flourishing and, and how we can grow in our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.